So I want to give you a little bit of background before we get into this story. This story happens right after uh, Jesus and his disciples have uh, partaken of the Last Supper together. Uh, this is kind of on Thursday night um, of Holy Week, the Thursday night before Jesus is to be uh, crucified. And so the disciples had all been gathered together. They had eaten together. They had shared uh, laughter and food together. And then Jesus went out to the garden to pray. And as uh, Jill talked about with the kids, he was there and praying and trying to find some way for God to release him from this chaos. And he eventually comes to this conclusion, not my will, but thine. And in the midst of his kind of anguish over what's to come, his disciples fall asleep, and especially during this last kind of section of the gospel story, these followers of Christ who were supposed to be the closest ones to him really show their true colors. They really show what they're all about. And this story's no different. So as the disciples kind of re-arouse themselves and uh, Jesus calls them forward and says, let's go, my betrayer is coming. Soon enough, Judas shows up. Judas was one of the disciples. Judas was one of his closest confidants, one who had followed him all the way. But Judas had struck a deal. I don't know if maybe he kind of saw where this thing was headed, but he decided to get on the other side of things. Maybe to ensure some kind of political power. I, I don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't really tell us. Whatever the case may be, he flips sides and betrays Jesus. And he brings with him this large crowd with clubs and swords under the cover of darkness. What's the famous phrase? Nothing good happens after, I don't know, midnight? <laughs> Judas comes with this large crowd, this sinister mob, and shows up and says, the one who I'm going to kiss is the one that you need to arrest. Sometimes it's hard to see in that moonlight, and I imagine that their torches or whatever it is that they were holding probably didn't shed much light on the situation. So he walks up and greets Jesus and says, greetings, Rabbi. Now this is interesting because Judas, this one that had been following him all along, called Jesus by the same name that the elders and the high priests and the outsiders called him. The disciples, all throughout the gospel, had referred to Jesus as Kyrios, or Lord, or Master. 
He calls him teacher or rabbi. He's already flipped the script in his mind. And Jesus, even though Judas has distanced himself, Jesus draws him back closer and calls him friend. I think he truly meant that. Friend, do what you have come to do. See, even throughout this, Jesus was not a passive actor. He was still the Son of God, the Sovereign. He was still in control. He could see the overarching picture of salvation. He could see that in order for humanity to be reconciled to God, God needed to experience every part of humanity and sanctify every part of the human experience, including suffering, including death, in order to conquer death. In order to express God's own solidarity with those who suffer and are oppressed, God became a crucified God. So throughout this Lenten season, we're going to be exploring what it means to be on the road to the cross. And that road is difficult, and it's not easy. But the question to us is, are we actually going to follow? Are we willing to walk that path? See, Jesus, in the midst of this kind of darkness and swirling chaos and this angry mob, maintains a non-anxious presence. He remains the leader and the teacher throughout it all. He calms the chaos. Just as God did at the beginning of creation, and just as Jesus did earlier in the book of Matthew when he calmed the stormy waters. So Jesus says, Friend, do what you have come here to do. And Judas kisses him, and the mob approaches ready to arrest him, and they take hold of him. And one guy gets caught in the middle. Malchus. Malchus in the middle. Do you like that clever little play on herbs? So Malchus... Malchus, we don't know very much, and, and even me calling him Malchus is uh, a stretch because uh, only the Gospel of John names him. Um, in fact, this is one story that is found in all four Gospels, which there aren't very many of those, all in fairly similar shape. So Malchus, all we know about him is that he is a slave to the high priest, 
that he's there with this angry mob sent from the high priests and the elders. He gets caught in the middle of this melee and gets his ear chopped off. Whack! (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking Malchus was actually pretty lucky because I don't think the disciple was aiming for his ear. I think he was aiming for his head. I don't know if Malchus just had really good reflexes or something and was able to duck real fast. Whatever the case may be, he gets his ear chopped off. What a great story. And he's a wounded person. He's a slave to the high priest. What does that mean exactly? Well, what that means to me is that he probably wasn't there because he wanted to be there. Malchus was there because he had to be. Now, it's hard to tell what his motivations were, but he was there because he was a slave to the high priest and had no say. We don't know if he was armed or not. It says the whole crowd, the large crowd carrying clubs and swords. We don't know if maybe he was one of those guys or not. Whatever the case may be, Malchus ends up in the middle of this, taking hold of Jesus, and one of the disciples takes a whack at him. And Jesus calms the chaos. In the midst of the swirling darkness, and says, No, this is not what I am about. This is not who we are. See, the disciples, I think, show to this point that they still have not understood the core message of Jesus. And that core message is we love at all costs. Even if it means giving up my own life. We love to the point of death. Non-violently. And, you know, it's interesting in here, Jesus says, Do you come to me like I am a bandit? And that word there for bandit is lestes, which in Greek means one who leads a rebellion. And I think both the angry mob and the disciples thought that Jesus was a lestes. I think the disciples thought... This is our moment. We're ready for battle. We're going to aggressively attack the other side. It's time to lead the rebellion, and we're going to take matters into our own hands and make this happen. We are going to powerfully overflow, overthrow this Roman government and all of this system. We're going to take control. We're going to do it by the sword. And Jesus says, no. 
That's not what I'm about. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. March Madness is coming up. Those who live by the three, die by the three, right? The very thing that you are trying to use to conquer and to grasp power and to grasp victory is the very thing that will be used against you. St. Augustine often refers to sin as grasping that which you cannot have. One of the disciples grasped that sword to try and take hold of the situation and power. And Jesus said, no. There's a couple of reasons for this. The first is, like I said, his core message is love at all costs. But he also recognized the overarching plan of salvation here that God had been working on since the beginning of creation. And he says this is to fulfill Scripture. This does not mean that the, the Scripture was like a pre-written game plan that Jesus had to specifically follow. It means that the will of God that's been displayed in Scripture throughout time is continuing in Jesus, the person who represents a crucified God. Jesus says, not my will, but thine. In Philippians, one of the most uh, ancient uh, Christian hymns, describes Jesus as being of the same substance as God, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but Jesus, taking on the form of a slave, emptied himself. Jesus saw himself in Malchus. Was Malchus a victim or the enemy? Oftentimes, We make the victim the enemy. We blame the victim for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe Malchus should have ducked quicker. Whatever the case may be, Jesus says, love your enemies. Either way, Whether Malchus represents to us all who experience suffering and pain, or whether Malchus represents to us the enemies with which we think we must battle, we are called to love. We are called to exhibit Christ's nonviolent, peaceful presence. That is the way of the cross. 
God's self-emptying is the way of the cross. And so we too, we too are called to walk this road to the cross. That's why we do this every year during Lent, to open our hearts and prepare ourselves for the pain and suffering of the cross, but also the joy of Easter. And you cannot have the joy of Easter without the pain of Good Friday. We often, in our culture, want to skip over the pain. We want to numb it. We want to Tylenol it. We want to get rid of it. We want to not experience it. But it is as much a part of life as anything else. In order to experience the joy of Easter, we must walk the road to the cross to empty ourselves and to walk with those who are already on the road to the cross, whether they want to be or not. Whether they are victims or enemies. We are called to walk the road of suffering, to be in solidarity with those that are. And to imitate the Christ who walks with us through the valleys of the shadow of death. The final verse in this story says that the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. They realized that the road Jesus was on, they finally realized the road Jesus was on was one on the way to the cross. And that didn't compute with their idea of Jesus as a leader of a rebellion. And so they abandoned him. They deserted him and left They fled. They could not handle this message that we love at all costs, including emptying ourselves. That is the road to the cross. Mallory and I, during this Lenten season, are... And this was her idea. Uh, we are decluttering, right? Um, and it's a good time of year anyways to do spring cleaning. And so she's doing, we, we started this thing called 40 Bags in 40 Days. And we've got these 40 different areas of our house. Are you all doing it too? No? You just heard? Oh, never mind. Okay, sorry. Uh, so we have these 40 different areas in our house that we're gonna, we're, we've been focusing on uh, to try and declutter. And to empty. And while I went into it thinking, you know, this is, this is going to be great. <laughs> we need to declutter. We've been needing to do this for years. We've been living in this house seven years now, and there's a bunch of crap everywhere. What I've realized is twofold. First of all, 
emptying is hard work. (laughs) And it's a pain. And it's not all that much fun. The second thing is, yeah, there is a practical benefit to it. But there's also a spiritual benefit. The spiritual benefit of literally clearing space to make room. That is the purpose of Lent. To clear space in our lives to make room for God. We are called to the road to the cross to empty ourselves, to make room for God so that God's love can fill us up so that we will be enabled to love even our enemies and the ones whose ears we want to chop off. But we have to open ourselves up and let go. And so Christ invites us to that table. Yeah, the, the Passover table is, the, the Last Supper table is great. It's a feast, and it's joyful and laughter, and it's great. But the double-edged sword is that it also means emptying ourselves. That is the table to which we are invited. That is why we reenact Christ's death and resurrection in our lives through the sacrament. And so in a moment, we're going to partake of that table. This act, this sign of emptying ourselves and being filled at the exact same time. That is what it means to live in God's grace. And that is what God calls us to do. To empty ourselves to follow on the road to the cross and not to desert this message, but to embrace it. That is our call today.